Hello, I'm Julia Lupton, Interim Director of the University of California Humanities Research Institute. It's my privilege to introduce Tracing Everyday Upheavals in the Middle East, a limited podcast series supported by a UCHRI multi-campus graduate student working group grant. This podcast brings together nine scholars from four UC campuses who have personal and academic engagements with the Middle East. They share their stories and experiences with upheavals in the region. This project focuses on upheavals in everyday life, unearthing intimate histories, complex presence, and imagined futures. In this final episode, our scholars consider where they encounter upheavals in the everyday. So I guess we talked about kind of what upheavals mean to us or how do we define them. So I think my next question is, where do we find, at least in the work that we do, where do we find moments of everyday upheaval? I think we all talked about how upheaval is sort of everywhere, right? It's not just in those big moments, but it could also be very elusive, right? Very difficult to find tangibly. So which archives, which sites, or which sources can we use to find moments of upheaval or everyday upheaval? I will say your body, like ask yourself what is like the moments that I think I find the moment that you were describing that you got harassed in a public protest for the first time or Ida telling you about like, no, I should fight back. I think these are for me upheavals and that's why upheaval is a feminist issue. That's why walking on a street, the way I want to be is a, is an upheaval and like a daily practice. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's so that's so powerfully put. Like our body is definitely one of the most kind of important starting points. And it's also one, I think uh, something we've been like at least talking about more and more is also like the ways even um, having difficult relationships to our own bodies, like a lot of shame around that. And um, that's not necessarily unique to like any one region, but it is, there are particular ways in which I've, I have internalized this kind of shame and shaming. But I, I, I think um, I think, yeah, the, the, at least the past two years for me, because I went back to Beirut right before the uprising to do like field work with a subcultural community and in the process, um, like so much happened. I went to do ethnography with a community also that I had grown up with. And so trying to get from like people's like stories from our everyday experiences, from the ways, you know, it was like skateboarders, the ways we use space, move through space. Um, and like, especially on like things like skateboards, it's very much also like, there's very much a physicality to that. And it's noisy and it's joyful and it's a lot of things. But at the same time, I think my own um, experiences there, like the, the years that I went, I don't know if, if it's a lucky or unlucky kind of coincidence that I went at this moment of not only like upheaval, but also um, collapse. So like the economic collapse, the explosion for me being physically assaulted by like my interlocutors in the community, not only who are my research interlocutors, but are my family members, my community, like people I've grown up with. And so I think for me now, like returning to the US after all of that time and thinking about like, well, how do I do research? How do I even hold all of that? Like, where do I even begin from? And then recognizing too that um, trauma 
for me, like one of my trauma responses is also dissociating. Mm -hmm. And so like, where do I even, how do I do ethnography when I was too uh, traumatized in the everyday to take notes? And now that I'm back, I realize my memory is full of gaps. Like, how is that also part of a, at least for my personal like work, like how is that maybe even like dissociating also a method as well? And something at least that can inform um, the ways and the types of work that we do. So I really just, I appreciate that point about the body and at least that's what it gets, like that's what it kind of uh, prompts for me as a person with a complicated relation now to research and ethnography and a place and communities. I wanna, so maybe we can also think about like home as a, as a site also to find this like everyday of people and that's like a tricky one because it's like be difficult to define in the first place. Like where is home, what is home, when is home? So I, like my connection maybe to the Middle East is a little way less direct than all of you. I'm just purely in diaspora here, but I, yeah, but I mean, I guess this is like the point. It's like, like the Middle East isn't even only the Middle East. Yeah. And then, um, but then just like trying to figure out like what is home and where is home in that context is a little difficult, especially when you're like, I'm just experiencing like the Middle East through these like mediations it's through television, through like satellite television. So it's more direct, I guess. And then there's the American news coverage and then there's what people are just saying. And then there's scholarship, um, all these different sources of like different understandings of home in my American home that I don't quite identify with, but I also don't identify with the versions of home that are coming into this home. So it's like trying to piece these things together that seems like some kind of, that's like its own creative activity. Like I'm trying to put together a puzzle, but there's no like final result that actually I know it's supposed to look like and there's no reference that I'm supposed to follow through. Um, yeah, home might be a site also of everyday people. This is aside from just actual violence and, and things yeah. that can actually like happen in your home. I think it is the first place we generally tend to upheaval mm -hmm. like make upheavals right. as yeah. well like as teenagers as kids like mm -hmm. you want things to change and I remember I was like I mean I was an angry teenager I was not really happy with my family not being politically involved in anything and I was finding them really apolitical I was like kind of ashamed that they weren't educated they were coming from well like I mean it took me years to figure out that they were just trying to get by in a very assimilationist nation state as the good minority, keeping mm -hmm. up their culture, but trying to get as smooth as they can get in terms of the politics. So mm -hmm. invisibilize themselves. And, and I think I, even though my, I can speak my mother, I grew up home comparingly. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a very similar experience actually, because like my mother, mother's and father's mother tongue is not Turkish. I grew up in the Turkish capital. My mother tongue is Turkish. I can perfect, I understand I cannot talk to them. I end up in this education system, which was, I think just taught me that holding on my ethnicity means that I'm rejecting this Turkishness or identity, but also the way my family was trying to teach me Laos and Laos culture was to, I'm also like, 
I was reacting to that because probably I was like too patriarchal, too queer, similar to things. I wasn't comfortable there as well. I don't know where home is, but yeah. it's definitely a place of upheaval. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. It's probably also a key. Yeah, it's funny that I also feel like home is the first place you revolt because during the revolution, like the hardest thing was to just convince my parents that I can <laughs> go to the process. It yeah. wasn't even going to the process or the police or whatever. It was just my mom, right? Like, just let me go. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. It's, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have to yeah. Yeah, this is so funny. This makes me think about a funny memory. So we, my, I have two sisters. And by the way, as a fellow Black Sea person, I want to say Black Sea is in riot. um i'm also from that region so my sisters and i we were going to protest and we didn't share this with my parents obviously because they they didn't like that um and then my mom came home and she found some milk we had bought from a very cheap supermarket and some vinegar and some lemons and masks and she was like who visited like she thought like someone with young kids visited and they bought that cheap milk from a supermarket we were like we got it and then she like, why do you have vinegar here in your backpack because it was like it was very visible and I thought like I bought it as a gift for a foreigner like we were trying to like come up with like, Oh, that lem- like that mask who brought that mask like um yeah like trying to have no upheavals at home like I'm so interested in the youth studies type of things for my next project and that's also why I'm kind of biased I hear so many youth studies topics coming on and off like from your class um but I really like how like our home is a place and I'm also like our home shouldn't be the place like I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine uh, going to a protest also without their parents knowing said, but like if I die in the protest without my mom knowing, what would I tell her? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you would be dead. <laughs> you don't need to yeah, What if something it? happens to us in the protest? Like, yeah. what do you do? You don't want to, yeah. yeah. I mean, we also like kind of, uh, and when, when Lalu was speaking earlier, it just struck me that and talking about Turkey and nation state and all, all of that, our regions were formed by upheaval as nation states. It, like they are the products of these like very violent, uh, you know, colonial submarines from an empire. Before. Yeah. I mean, if we don't want to go back even further back in history, but but let's say the nation states as we know them, and then independence movements that were also like products of, of upheaval. So our social realities are constantly shaped by, uh, you know, processes like that that are very violent. But here again, I will just go back to question one. This is again a point where I want to even out. All nation states are upheavally and for American state, it's very upheavally as well. Like, oh, but there are some, some places like no more very peaceful formation of government and then you just have an election every four years and uh, no, I mean uh, maybe later yeah maybe but later the but... birth of the nation I feel is always the state is a violent 
Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I agree with that. I mean, even in France, you have like, you know, like disputes that are ethnic or related to borders. But our region in specific, um, I mean, in other regions as well, I'm not saying only our region, has had like this constant, you know, I don't know, Turkey, I mean, Turkey has also military dictatorship and then, but even like Lebanon, for example, I can't think of a place more upheavally than that. But I think it's also because it's in our hearts. Upheaval is such a word full of effects. Okay, again, I'm, I, may be, I may be being the therapist here. Like, but I, <laughs> I feel like you associate Lebanon with that thing because it's in your heart. Yeah, I'm sorry. When I talk to someone European or American, uh, where the whole like, react, like social or political reality was so simple, I mean, that maybe a weekend and then before it was I don't know Carter <laughs> whatever if they're younger they had Obama and uh but we in that in our country like in Lebanon we like literally were born in a in a moment of like incredible uh violence and our lives are constantly like marked by that uh I don't. You feel like you feel like yeah. No, I mean, I just want to say, I think, I think maybe like also our imaginary of Europe and the U.S. is also like oh, like white and peaceful and all of that. But for people of color within like Europe and the U.S. and different uh, minority groups or groups of people that have been like racialized, I don't, I don't think that the experience has always been just peaceful and easy. It's, it's like uh, being born into like a constant kind of oppression historical and ancestral traumas and ongoing kind of traumas. So I think I, I do agree with the Yasemin's point that definitely like um, it, it, it's like, yeah, the types of like upheaval might look different. But like, for example, even at the times maybe when there was the, the third world um, struggles as well. Also within the U.S. for like uh, black communities, for example, they were also imagining their neighborhoods as the third world, as being mm -hmm. oppressed by these like colonial mm -hmm. oppressors um, as well, who like represented by like the government, but also the police on the ground every day. And so I think that, yeah, I think definitely that when we like look also at the everyday, like that's also not, it's not only the everyday, but we, it's also important. I think these more grand narratives like always end up kind of excluding. Like when we think of the Middle East, mm -hmm. we always end up, we, we make similar kinds of exclusions. We imagine a particular experience of being in Lebanon that doesn't necessarily, you know, most of the time doesn't necessarily represent a difference at all. And and so, and, and, you know, even if we don't intend it, but it does, it does happen. And, and often that, that becomes really dangerous. And so I think that that's just something I wanted to. Right. And we, we say this as we are on unceded yeah. land, like on yeah. indigenous lands that have, this is a settler colonial yeah. <laughs> project. Yeah. I want to say something a little bit boring about the question of sites and archives, uh, because, so I don't work explicitly on upheavals or revolutions. I work on um, criminality and policing in 19th century Egypt, but in these archival documents that I, I, I look at to sort of find criminals or policemen, there's just so much protesting going on, not in the sense of protesting in the streets, but in the sense of petitioning, collectively petitioning, petitioning the Sultan, petitioning the government, escaping prison, 
prison break so many incidents oh, of, of, cool. of escapes from prison <laughs> that are not like that didn't change anything really but our moments of escape from prison this was just repeatedly happening in the 19th century just people escaping from prisons because the guards would just let them like you know <laughs> it was new I mean, it's a very simplistic narrative, what I'm saying, but like, I mean, all of these moments of things that are really, really about just constantly protesting your reality or whether that's the, con- the conditions in your village, your local village man, village head, or should we call it, or the Umda, um, or being incarcerated or being arrested, just constant moments that everyday people in in these archives really is just making me think a little bit more about how we can find these moments of I don't want to say resistance because I don't think it's necessarily about resistance but it is about protesting somehow uh, in the in the mundane in the very ordinary right in like writing a petition to the sultan about your oppressive onda or writing who, who, who is banning the whole village from marrying his ex-wife. That, that's like a case, you know, the onda of the village is banning <laughs> the whole village from marrying his ex-wife. So that man who was marrying that woman found himself accused of a felony because he's marrying the onda's ex-wife. Right? So, and then he's petitioning and he's doing all of, so all of these little acts, where do we put them in the genealogy of upheaval or of protesting and how does sort of their <laughs> accumulation lead to something but i like your boring answer because i have <laughs> like i'm gonna sound even more boring like it's <laughs> approach, like how you look at the data like you can look at statistics and find appeals again just with our previous example about purchasing power and looking at over time um or in the work that i do like i i do interviews but just looking at like how people talk about things um on in their everyday life and the types of um, possibilities that they're trying to have for themselves or the type of limitations they're imposing on others. Because I'm looking at education and care, labor. Yeah, so there are lots of boring answers to this, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just thinking about like the role of um, social media as well, like what we can find through there and kind of trace what people are talking about or tagging or, um, and I was wondering too, Mary, because you were talking earlier too about like doing work on like Reddit, which is also, I feel like when you read a Reddit thread, that's a site of upheaval in itself. Just so I'm kind of curious too, in relation, like how you can map out that type of upheaval and change even on like uh, social media. Yeah, it gets crazy. (laughs) sure People don't like, stay themselves you can't associate a person with their account like on mm-hmm. a thread um so it's it's really just a lot of it's a mess of thoughts and, and voices <laughs> just like thrown at a wall but I I also wonder if that's just a way for people to like intervene in their realities they mm-hmm. like this is actually what's happening and mm-hmm. this is actually what should happen and I mean, I think in Lebanon, we're seeing, uh, first of all, I want to say that I totally agree with you, Aita. And I'm totally for, like, abolishing thinking about in the national context and returning to a moment in the 70s where where things were more, it was more thinking um, along solidarity lines internationally. But but anyway, I'm I'm just diverging. Uh, Basically, what I wanted to say is that it's so interesting what's happening now in Lebanon. Uh, The fact that 
you know, media had such a power to drive the political discourse. And now there's such an amazing proliferation of voices on social media. And I feel like I don't even need to, like I used to like watch LBC or TV stations that are go-to for the news. And I, I don't feel the need anymore. And, and I, I started early in saying, uh, I mean, this is something I would love to study, but like there's just the infusion of humor into the political discourse and into the discourse of, of upheaval, I find so refreshing. I was listening to Shaden, uh, Shaden Esperanza's. It's actually subtitled in English if you want to watch it, Lalu. It's like a, a stand-up comedy that's just so hilarious and so subversive. Yeah, just to say that I feel like as sort of, for me, like this idea of archive, uh, I mean, I personally, in my work, I'm really interested in, in what's happening on um, on social media in, in that respect. And maybe it's in relation of being in the diaspora, so you don't have that, um, and it's very painful, right? Like, I mean, I don't have that sense of every day. Like, when I talk to my parents, who never tell me the truth anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One thing no. I want to add maybe to record, and I think how upheavals upheaval social media and archiving. Uh, there was this collectively made trend archive during Gezi and which changed like my, uh, I wanna say my life, but yeah, my relation with the archives, collecting, documenting, because it was literally the first social moments archives that was accessible to the people mm -hmm. who was making it. And I think there is generally this lack of access or lack of documentation we don't know what was there and that's why we always have to find out ways to reach these stories this narrative this counter histories and it is always tricky and i know similar stuff came out from egypt and like this archival community archival counter archival turn happened with those upheavals i think for mm -hmm. me through my perspective we really started to have archives that are our own. It is always a question mark where they are now, how can we access mm -hmm. them? I mean, for some I have like, there's a couple of platforms, they end up having uh, like accessible to people, but also stored in secure places, but you can, um, there are a couple of these examples. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, for example, Occupy Archive ended up in NYU, NYU's Tish, <laughs> they're storing the Occupy archive. Okay. So. Okay. Um, I, I just want to say too, is, um, like it's a it's an interesting point because um, when it comes to just like the the archives as well that we're creating, it's also it would be nice to also like learn more about how to like do it because I think for myself I had a lot of you know, the 2019, like an onwards in Lebanon archive on my phone, mm -hmm. which I didn't back up because I didn't know how to back up my WhatsApp group chats and, and all of these things and all these videos that were shared and all of these things. And then I end up in a situation where I am like uh, stuck in like Beirut airport, not allowed in for whatever, you know, for weird reasons. 
yeah, I don't know where Lebanese state like surveillance is at right now, but in terms of like, I had all these things on my phone, but I was told that moment, if you have anything related to this, you should delete, delete it all it. right now. And at this moment I was, I was at risk. I was in a position where I was, you know, already like held by the state. And I, if, and, and in my mind, I was like, do I delete everything off my phone or do I save it and risk that I might, I might get into further trouble now? And at that moment, it was like also safety kind of took a priority uh, for me. And so I, um, in thinking about those archives, I think those are kind of lessons that I would also like to have, like how have people like archived and documented um, these moments? Like where, um, where are the kind of spaces we can put that? I think now that I'm also trying to piece back together an archive and a memory of uh, memories of everything that's happened, I also find these like websites from Lebanon that are now like no longer active. And I'm like, well, who ran these websites? I want to see the timeline you created. I want to see, you know, and and so I, I am. I think that would be something. Um, I don't know if we'll continue talking about it or if other groups that will be working on that. How do we kind of archive every day? Where are spaces we can do that? I think, I, I think that question of archives is so exciting and so interesting. Like the everyday archive. And I'm really thinking about also Svetkovich, like archive of feelings. Like how do you archive? emotions and, and bodily experiences and, and affects because we're all like so viscerally and emotionally relate to that to those periods in that way. To learn more about tracing everyday upheavals in the Middle East and other UCHRI funded projects and grant opportunities, please visit uchri.org.